Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 94 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says my music is better than yours. Today's interview is with another fantastic character, just like last week's guest, Guy Pratt, which if you haven't heard that one yet, definitely do go back and check it out. He's worked with so many legends. Anyway, today's guest was a prodigy, earning entry to the Juilliard School for classical playing, but opted not to go so that he could pursue his dream of being a rock star. Despite working with the likes of the Picaro brothers from Toto and Jeff Skunk Baxter, his first real band didn't take off, but fate had it that none other than Richie freaking Blackmore heard him and invited him to join Rainbow, and he only went and played on the classic, iconic, legendary Rainbow Rising album. In fact, his keyboard playing is the very first thing you hear on that record. Yes, today's guest is Tony Carey. Known for his impeccable musicianship and versatility, Carey's keyboard wizardry blended seamlessly with Richie Blackmore's guitar prowess, helping to create the signature sound that fans around the world came to love. But Tony's career didn't stop at Rainbow. Following his departure from the band after three years, he embarked on a successful solo career, releasing a string of hits that showcased his songwriting skills and musical versatility. The songs like A Fine Fine Day that propelled him into the mainstream. There were seven Billboard hits, including that one, two of those going top 40, and so many more hits in Europe and around the world as well. It solidified his status as a solo artist with a unique and captivating sound. He also released music as an electronic sci-fi type theme under the name of Planet P Project, where he scored more hit records and singles like Why Me, which became a huge staple of MTV in the 80s too. He also worked with a lot of stars in a producer capacity, and you'll hear all about this and more in this fascinating interview with him. So please enjoy this fun chat with a man who says it like it is. Here's Tony Carey. I, I saw an interview with you once where you spoke about having loved music from a really early age. Now, was it always kind of the piano and the keyboards that had you interested in music or did you dabble with other instruments when you were younger? Well, I mean, I, I, I saw the Beatles. Like, and a lot of people will tell you this at my age. I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. I was 11. And then the Rolling Stones, Hermits, Hermits, the whole British invasion, and Elvis before that. And, you know, everybody wanted to be... Uh, and it was all guitar music, so I, I had an acoustic guitar. But when I was five years old, we had a piano in the house, and I couldn't kind of stay away from it. And uh, I, I was always on it. My mother tells me and uh, told me, and um, was fascinated with music. And we had the usual hits of the day. Uh, in our case, it was Joan Baez, uh, Harry Belafonte, yeah. whatever, whatever the popular music of the fifties. I was born in fifty three. And uh, going on, so I was interested in music, but uh, piano wasn't my primary instrument. I, what I studied was contrabass, was a, a double double okay. bass orchestra, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I played in, in in orchestras, school orchestras, and uh, was actually headed for a career as a as an orchestral musician. I was uh, after high school, I got accepted to some really prestigious top music schools, uh, Juilliard in New oh, York, wow. and. Rochester in, in in upstate New York, and uh, at the same time, I had I had a, I had a, I always had a rock band since I was eleven, and uh, I was in a we we're doing rhythm and blues covers and stuff, and I was playing piano and singing. And my bass professor, this was interesting, the professor that that, that instructed me, 
on the contrabass and 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 had a lot of influence with me, my, me applying to these music schools and everything. He says, "Well, here's what you can do: you can go to Juilliard and graduate, and in five years you'll be the number two bassist in the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra." He says, "Or you can hit the road with a rock and roll band and get all the pussy you can eat." I mean, <laughs> basically, basically, I go just go for it and go have fun because it was obvious that I was. More interested in, in 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 music, you know, popular music than, than orchestral music, and I flattered myself that I had the discipline to sit and play somebody else's music my whole life. But in retrospect, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it would have worked out. So, what did your parents make of that? Obviously, they were supportive of the music side of it, but for you choosing to not go to school and study at this prestigious school, my dad, my dad jumped through hoops because he didn't have to pay for <laughs> Juilliard. We weren't rich. I mean, those places cost yeah. a fortune, and you either get a full scholarship or it costs. I mean, even in the in the in the seventies, like nineteen seventy one, it would have been thirty thousand bucks a year uh, just for tuition, and then and then and then and then living in New York City is the most expensive city in the world, and all that. So, my dad actually was probably secretly pretty happy about it. They were supportive of anything I wanted to do my whole life, so it wasn't wasn't even an issue. They said. Uh, well, you know, wish you luck. Right, if we have a saying, right if you get work, not not when you get work, but if you get work. And uh, I took off with a, a high school buddy, and we hit the road. We started a, a band, and two years later, we had a record deal. We were good. We were like a, a folk rock mm-hmm. band, like uh, Poco or before the Eagles, Eagles, and. Uh, I wasn't the singer. We we had a lot of three-part harmony, like Crosby, Sims, and Nash influence. I wasn't the lead singer. I played piano and bass in the band. And we got a record deal, which got us out to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, ABC Dunhill Records signed us for an obscene amount of money. And uh, it's all about being in the right place in the right time. And we were close to New York. And the guy that heard us was from New York, based in New York. And, you know, we weren't in Indiana somewhere and uh, out in the sticks or North Dakota or whatever. And we were close to where record deals were being offered. And we got one. They sent us out. And all of a sudden we're in, in, in West Hollywood, you know, in uh, 1973. And we tried forever to get a record made. We, we had uh, Gary Katz producing, the guy from okay, Steely yeah, Dan, yeah. who was famous. First of all, never finishing records, or <laughs> I hope, <laughs> or or firing firing the whole band, and and you know keep like what Steely Dan did, and keeping two guys. So they fired our bass player and drummer before they never even played a note, and our two the other two guys in the band could weren't allowed to get both guitar players weren't allowed to play guitar. So what, in other words, they sabotaging exactly what that the record label had signed was the charm of these young kids uh, doing our own songs. And they were obviously charming. Somebody thought it was worth putting a million bucks into and good old Gary kind of sabotaged that. And so we hung around in a studio for way over a year in, uh, we're living in the Chateau Marmont hotel on sunset strip. Like, Hollywood swing, and as they say, and we were playing. Was playing with Jeff Picaro was in wow. the band for a while. I mean, these are all session yeah. guys, but they were they were going to be playing the album. Jeff Picaro's brother Mike was playing bass, and Skunk Baxter was playing guitar. Incredible. And we were we were rehearsing at uh, SIR Studios in in, in Hollywood. Uh, preparing a song to try to get yet another attempt to get something that we recorded. And Richie was two, two doors down looking for, to put together Rainbow for the Rising lineup. And he had every, everything but a keyboard player. He had Cozy was there, Ronnie was there, and Jimmy and Richie. And he heard me playing Hammond through probably about eight walls. <laughs> I was not shy. And sent actually Jimmy Bain over to ask me if I wanted to um play with try out with a band audition for the band and i was at a point with my own band that it didn't look like it was going anywhere and it wouldn't have gone anywhere so i said 
too much politics, too much Gary Katz, too much cocaine, too much everything. And I said, yeah, go for it. And the rest is history. So what happened with the, the recordings of that? You must have recorded some stuff when you were with that band. I mean, did that ever see the light of day? Shit tons of stuff, but I didn't have any influence over it. I don't know where it is. We got we had reels and reels and reels of two-inch tapes, of course, somewhere. ABC Biz, uh, uh, Dunhill Records went bankrupt, unsurprisingly, uh, <laughs> at one point and merged with somebody that eventually emerged with Universal and I have no idea, or maybe Warner's. And then a bunch of two-inch tapes got burned up in this huge Warner Gosh, Brothers yeah, fire yeah. in uh, in California of many years ago. I have no idea. I, ne- I never heard anything. And uh, it, this, this was like before the internet, before MP3s, before digital. Yeah. It's not like it, we'd have rough mixes to take home at night, you know, on, 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 our, on our smartphones or anything. <laughs> We're talking to over uh, about fi- about fifty years ago. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, such a shame, such a shame. But you talk, you touched on the uh, joining Rainbow there. First question, then um, Graham Bonnet told me you'd never heard of the band Rainbow when he joined. Um, had you heard of Rainbow? Um, I was well aware. I was well aware of it because the California Jam had been a year before, and Richie did his whole thing where he smashed a guitar up and. Uh, put his guitar through a hundred thousand dollar TV camera. I thought that's cool, and loved the band anyway. I mean, you know, big, loud, present, noisy, rambunctious. What's not to love? And then, right in, I'm going to say, end of '74 or very beginning of '75, "Man on a Silver Mountain" had been released. It was all over the radio yeah. in in <clears throat> in LA. So I was quite aware of the band. I didn't. I didn't know anything what what Rainbow was. I'd never heard of Ronnie. Of course, I didn't know anything about Elf, but Richie's name on it, and it's a great singer, and it's a really cool song. And so everybody's you know, quite aware. But like Graham was coming from Australia, that he hadn't heard of it. It doesn't surprise me. But I was, <laughs> I was in Southern California, and I I was aware of it. Yeah, well aware of the band. So when they they approached you and said, "Come and come and play with us. Come and try out." I mean, obviously. You were struggling with your previous band. I mean, what was going through your head at that stage? Being a young man, you'd heard of this band, Richie Blackmore, famous virtuoso. What, what, was, what were you thinking at this stage? I called my dad the night that I'd met Jimmy Bain. I said, hey, guess what, Pop? I'm going to be a rock and roll star. And he, he said, I thought you already were one. <laughs> and I said, no, I mean a real one. I said, I said I'm going out to play with this guy from Deep Purple tomorrow, and I'm probably going to join his band. I said, well, good luck, like he always did. Right if you get work. And so I was, I, was, I mean, it was, it was, you know, pretty exciting because it's not that you give things a lot of existential thought when you're a teenager or, or I was maybe 20 yeah. at the time. It's, I mean, it's just take it like it comes, but it always seemed to come, you know, yeah. without without me making any uh, immense effort or to push things or fight things that the universe seemed to be blowing things in my direction that all I had to do was reach out my hand and, and grab them. So that was one of them. Incredible stuff. And what stage were, were the band at at that point? I think you said Cozy was there already. So everybody, they started work on the new record. There. Everybody was there okay. and we had, uh, uh, Richie had tried, like, who did he, he, I heard stories. I would never, I didn't know these people, but I knew of them. I know that, uh, the guy from the Vanilla Fudge had oh, auditioned, and the guy from Roxy Music, uh, Eddie Jobson had auditioned, and some Italian guy. But all the all the the Hammond guys had like auditioned and synth guys, and he didn't like any of them. And so I, I had never played hard rock music, but I could I could bluff my way into a convent <laughs> as a cucumber salesman, and. Uh, uh, I was kind of, you know, bluffing, but you know, it's it's loud, it's rough, it's it's heavy hammered. I knew what I was aware of what Rick Wakeman was doing, and yeah, obviously aware of what John had played before. You know, uh, uh, Made in Japan was all over the place yeah. uh, too. So I, you know, I knew what he was kind of looking for, like a little bit of you know, fake classical, really loud with a little prog touch. And the first, the first stage, we went right on the road. We rehearsed for a while, and we did, I think, nine or ten shows in America. Uh, and not everybody knows this, but they're all, these are all, like, 
on on YouTube, actually, they're all bootlegged. Every single show we ever played, we played in Canada, we played in New York, we played in Detroit, we played in Florida, we played in Texas. Then we played nine shows anyway, just to like warm up as a band. And uh, after which we went to Munich and uh, into Musicland Studios and did Rainbow Rising in, in about 10 minutes. <laughs> wow. I love that kind of throwaway. We just did Rainbow Rising. I mean, one of the greatest albums of all time, still revered today. It's still still up there. Um, that's in terms of doing it, that surprises me. I mean, that that, that amazes me that that's. Uh, I mean, re- the, the respect that album gets fifty years later, nearly fifty years later, is uh, astonishing to me, and that's great, fantastic. <laughs> and in terms of the record itself, I mean, was it the sort of thing that Richie just came and said, "This is what we're doing," or was it a band process, or how how did that kind of thing work for that re- that record? He never told me what to play. He never told Cozy what to play. I think he sat with Ronnie. I wasn't there. We did. He 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 did Ronnie. The vocals he did with just Ronnie and Martin Birch. But my keyboard parts, it was just me and Martin Birch. Richie'd fuck off and go somewhere else and come back and he'd like it or not like it, and he liked it. And uh, there was no like dictatorial anything. And uh, I never got musically. I was I was on. We were on the same page. I mean, everybody. Jimmy was kicking ass on the bass. Cozy was a monster. You know, Ronnie was Ronnie. Richie was Richie at the top of his game. I was keeping up, I guess. Apparently, nobody ever told me I wasn't. And uh, uh, it was it was like rolling off a log. It was the, the, musically speaking, getting the music part done was like I said. We made it in ten minutes. It was no sweat. I heard later that there'd been some discussion about, and there always is, you know, with, with but but the vocal melodies and exactly that, you know, they, they probably spent the most time getting the vocals right. But the bottom tracks, we'd do three a day and come in and do the keyboards. He wanted the, an intro for Tara Woman, keyboard intro, and I did that in two hours with Martin. And he wanted a solo for A Light in the Black. I did that in two hours with Martin. Uh, that was one time he hadn't made a suggestion. I, I played it in a high kind of your usual minimum register, which is like yeah. up at the top register. He says, how about if you do so, you know, how about a 12 string? How about if you do something in a, in a lower octave? I said, that's a great idea. So I did. And he came back. And he says, yeah, I like that. I'm basically well, good to go. So no sweat. The music was not the problem. There weren't there weren't any problems. So the music was not the problem. The music was like effortless. And how did it, just just touching on Tara Woman? Obviously, it's the opening track. It's the first thing we hear. It's it's you on your on your keyboard, your synthesizer, that kind of thing. I mean, you say you were asked to write something. Was it just off the top of your head? Did it was it kind of pre planned? How did it yeah, go? Yeah, it was. Yeah, free fall, free fall off the top of my head. The hardest part was I played this improv piece. Rainbow was all about yeah. improvisation. If if you've heard the, if you've heard the yeah. live. Albums uh, uh, on stage, of course, but then there's an 80 variations, 80 live recordings from that tour. The I never played the same thing twice, and I still haven't to this day played the same thing twice in my life. I don't learn parts, and uh, the tricky bit was getting something that I like. And the tricky bit because we didn't work like these days. You'd work with a yeah. click track or some kind of metronome or a drummer or something. It was just free form, uh, loose time. The tricky part was doubling it because it was too many, too many moves. And that's what took the most time, getting the first mini move with a little melody in it. That was easy. And then Martin said, Bert said, uh, why don't we do a little? I said, I know what you want. And he said, so putting the second one, and that took the most time because it was, there was, there was no pattern. You know, I just had to like read my own mind and get it, but we got it. It was about two hours. Wow. Phenomenal stuff. Uh, and as you mentioned there, I mean, you were with the band for, I think, about three years, weren't you? And the, the music wasn't the problem, yeah, but yeah. the other side of it. I mean, you're a bit younger than the rest of the guys. I mean, how was that dynamic? Oh, well, me being oblivious, I, I, I it, it wasn't really much of a dynamic. As long as we were playing, everything was cool. If we weren't playing, I didn't really have much to say to anybody, or they, except for Jimmy. Jimmy and me were buddies. And and Ronnie, Ronnie and I got along really, really well. But we were like the Americans, <laughs> and this band was very—I mean, Ronnie and me—and and this band was very much Americans against the branch, as it were. And Cozy and Richie were an like, ultra British, and Ronnie is from upstate New York. And I knew Ronnie before I met him. I knew him. I knew him. You know, I mean, this is like American guy, and he's older than me, but still, he's like an yeah. uncle. 
So we got along fine. Uh, the dynamic in a band, I mean, you know, show up, do your job. I mean, I got fired a couple of <laughs> times uh, uh, and, I, and then hired back. And the third time I just had enough of the nonsense, I just left in the middle of the Long Live Rock and Roll album. There was some shenanigans. I just hit the road in the middle of the night and got out of there. There you go. You mentioned Ronnie there. I mean, absolutely legend, iconic voice. I mean, not a voice like it in, in the world of rock. I mean, what was he like as, as a person and someone to work with? And what was it like watching him on stage when he when he was belting out these classics? I think I was there the first time he threw the devil horns, actually. Ah, I think wow. I was on stage. I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of people a lot of people will say that they've been that that you know they were the first person to uh, Yeah, uh, whatever. I think I think. 40 million people will say, will, will say that they saw the place hit the, the Twin Towers, you know, in a, in, a, in a city of 8 million. But whatever, I'm, I I will maintain to this day that I was on stage with the first time Ronnie through the devil. Was, he's a great guy. If you saw him in interviews, that's the way he was. I mean, straight straight ahead, you know, pretty pretty much dead honest. He gave you his opinion the way he called him like he saw him. You know, he could be... You know, he can be bitchy like everybody can. Mostly, uh, really a gentleman. I mean, he's Italian fella, uh, Italian American uh, from upstate New York. They have this; they're very polite, and uh, even if he's about to stab you in the back, he's not swearing at you. Uh, 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 they have this uh, gentlemanly air about him. He was, a, he was a real gentleman, and he was always lovely to me. And Wendy, his wife, she was with him from the. From the early days, I think guess I, I don't think they were married at the time, but she was with us the whole time and in, in the studio at in uh, on the road in the studio uh, on the rising tour and then in the long live rock and roll sessions and in the in the rising sessions. But Wendy was always there, and she was great too. It was just great people. Fantastic stuff. And you mentioned some shenanigans around you leaving. What was it that actually led to leaving? Was there any regrets afterwards that you'd left? My I'm from my from their side, I think so. They had to look all over the place to get a replacement. Hell no, I was happy to get out of there. There was there is some crazy shit. There's all this. They were into this occult. Or Richie was into this occult thing, and he was calling up having seances with Ouija boards, and it, it was getting dangerous, scary, and a little bit violent. And I thought it's time for me to go. And I don't want to say much more about it. It's pretty much been documented, and and, and I regret anything i might have said about it when i was a lot younger but it could it's nobody's business but call it a major personality clash you know i mean and and as one of the only four rainbow members that ever i mean there've been what 40 of us i think there's been a, a quite a series of pers- major personality clashes over the years so i don't want to get into that that guy's a great guitar player he is indeed. Uh, and soon after leaving, you, you found yourself in Germany, the decision to move there. Um, many would see that as an unusual move. What inspired that? Well, being oblivious, uh, I had I had met people on the road in Germany, and a guy called me uh, in 70. I, I left the band in the fall of 77, flew back to L.A., and uh, I got a telegram. Remember those? Oh, wow. A telegram. Maybe, maybe you don't remember those, but... Uh, <laughs> There were pieces of paper uh, delivered, hand delivered. That said, uh, asked me if I could come to Munich to uh, work uh, as a session musician uh, to help a guy record. Now, I said, sure, send me a ticket, and he did. And I, I loved Europe for the minute I saw it. It was like going to Mars. I mean, it was especially for me. I was not well traveled, and then we had done a, a world tour. Been saw Australia, saw Japan, saw Europe. And I loved Europe. I loved Germany. And uh, while I was here, this was in uh, August of 78. It's been 45 years. Uh, I met some people. One, one, one guy I met had a recording studio in Frankfurt. And I made a deal with him that I'd come in when, when all the paying customers had gone, like at midnight, and with my little cassette recorder and play the piano and just, you know, goof around trying to compose stuff. And that led to me getting some studio time. And that led to me to making records. Uh, uh, in the beginning, electronic records, like Kraftwerk-inspired, uh, frog, kind of goofy electronic drum machine music, which led to me figuring out how to play guitar and bass on records. And and 
which led to a record deal in America because this guy had connections, which led to um, some big hit singles uh, in the States for me and um, uh, some huge singles for me here in Europe and uh, albums. And uh, I mean, I had seven uh, songs in the in the Hot 100 in America and two top 40 and uh, a number one in the radio charts is a song called A Fine, Fine Day. And, you know, that's did good. I was in MTV a lot. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And then all of that led to me uh, uh, producing. And then I spent a long, long time actually living in the studio producing people. I produced people like Joe Cocker and uh, Chris Norman from Smokey, Smokey and yeah. all these uh, un- unlikely People, because I never cared about the music, about the genre. I just cared if it was good or yeah. not, you know, and trusted myself to know if something was good. <laughs> I produced Jose Carreras, the oh, opera wow. singer, you know, all, all kinds of different shit, just all kinds of different shit. And, you know, just uh, when you start having and I started having, having children, you know, mm-hmm. and a family and I wasn't about to drag my my half German family and relocate to California, you know, in the middle of all this. and. In the meantime, my kids are, are you know, in their 40s, 30s and 40s, and I just stayed. Yeah. You, you run through an awful lot of your career in a short time there. Let's rewind a little bit to the, the, the very start of what you were saying there, when you were saying you were in the studio and you got to learn the guitar and, and putting down different things. I mean, that sounds like it must have been um, a really kind of, I don't know how to explain this, like... A, a really nice way anyway of being in the studio and working and at your own pace and, and finding things out and learning. It must have been a really happy time for you, was it? Well, the whole life's been a happy time, including now. But I tell you what, it was a free college education yeah. in in how to use analog studios, which means cutting two-inch tape with a razor yeah. blade. There are kids, there are other reasons to have a razor blade in the studio. <laughs> uh the second one being cutting tape <laughs> and real analog tape and then gluing it together yeah. and, and learning all the stuff, learning how to engineer with all those dials met and all those patch cords did and then everything and how to make it, how to mic up a drum kit and how to mic up a, a guitar amp and how to stack vocals and, 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 and record. And I learned all that like a free apprenticeship at the same time, having the luxury of bit of, of having enough early success that it was actually making them money. It wasn't costing anybody any money, you know, and I was actually selling records and uh, um, writing songs for, for, for other people. What I mean, I've, I've published uh, over the years uh, between 1100 and 1200 songs, wow. depending on how you, on how you count them. Some, sometimes a song will be like 20 little pieces in the, in a you know, film soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So, but say 1100 and then, uh, and, you know, I just, writers write and i'm a writer and i just you just write and write and write and sometimes i do two a day sometimes i do 20 a month you know for years and years and years i lived in the studio phenomenal and it sounds like i'm 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 saying it casually and i guess i am now in but in retrospect i worked my ass off and it was a, a a great way to kill 40 years. I mean, you know, have to just have fun. I never had a real job in my life. And, you know, I never, uh, never had a boss in my life. The only boss I ever had in my life was Richie Blackmore, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I quit that job. So, uh, yeah. Fair enough. And, and you mentioned your hits. You had seven over there in America, well, over in America. And the two big ones, a fine, fine day, the first day of summer. Um, was it that, a prominent member. Of- those aren't the those aren't the big ones. Those are two of the two of big the ones. big ones. Yeah, I had a separate project called Planet yes. P Project. We'll get to that in a second. Right. But firstly, those those, no, those right. ones I mentioned. Okay. Um, I just want to hear about the the the, the Geffen story. The, the guy, the prominent member of Geffen that didn't like. Well, they they signed you. They liked the songs, but he wanted the was it the lyrics changing he, and the parts changing yeah, and things you, like you that. You heard that story. I must I must have shot my mouth off on another podcast. <laughs> yeah, this guy, this guy. uh I mean, I don't want to dignify him by saying his name, but he, he, he was like the, the most important A&R guy. If you do some research, you'll figure out who it is. Uh, he loved the songs. He didn't like the lyrics. He, he didn't like uh, a fine, fine day for a reunion is about a, my a, 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 a uncle that I didn't actually have, but I invented, who'd gotten out of prison, out of uh, uh, 
been in prison for 20 years and he comes out and and he'd hidden some money and they were still after the money and it is you know the mafia type thing this is a story and he didn't like that lyric he wanted to be called in the in the heat of the night now that's all i'm going to tell you <laughs> he wanted to be called something like that and the second one was a song called the first day of summer which i thought was uh if I hadn't been a songwriter, I would have been an author, and I thought it was very, very lyrical. But the, the 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 feeling was on the first day of summer, the whole world knows your name, which is like you walk out and you feel that good. You know, yeah. everybody knows my name. I'm the man. It's the first day of summer. What nothing could be better. He hated that. He thought it should be slided in or anything, <laughs> you know, anything than other than the first day of summer. And I was of the opinion, silly me that my job was to make the music and the label's job was to sell it. And this was exactly in the early 80s where that was changing, where A&R guys at these big labels, Geffen included, would actually uh, sit with the artist from soup to, soup to nuts through the whole procedure and like be able to say things like, I think you should change these lyrics. Well, I'm a little older school than that. I said, well, listen, if you don't like my songs, then we don't have to record them. I don't have to release them. I can go somewhere else. And I did <laughs> eventually. So Gavin uh, did release uh, the, the eponymous Planet P project album. I, and this is also a funny story because I had, I had two record deals. Yeah. I actually had three, but I had two <laughs> record deals, which nobody ever has. One under Tony Carey and one under Planet P. And and Planet P was a, like a science fiction concept album. Um, very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I mean, Why Me, the, 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 the first single was about an a- astronaut that gets a panic attack when he's on. The, the, the countdown, you know, yeah. 10, 9, 8, 7, he says, no, I don't change my mind, change my <laughs> mind, fellas. And it's too, you know, it's too late. And my fine, fine day, first day of summer, my, the, the song's, from Tony Carey were story songs with a protagonist and a story and a beginning, middle, and end. And so we'd already agreed, okay, I could be in Tony Carey videos, but I can't be in Planet P videos because that confused everybody even more than they already were, <laughs> including, including me. And Giffen, uh, the, David, the David Geffen Company signed both of those projects. And we released the... Um, Planet P record, it did fairly well. Why me in, in particular? But there was uh, three songs that made it to MTV. There was three MTV videos, and it was got a shit ton of radio in in America and in Germany and in Japan and in uh, 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 all around Europe. And uh, so that was that. And then came time to for for the first Tony Carey album, which would have been an album called Some Tough City, and. Uh, this is where I had my run-in about the lyrics. I said, no, I'm not changing anything. Oh, and they wanted to cut a fine, fine day from four minutes 40. I agree that's too long for a single, but they wanted to cut the whole bridge out, which really explains what was going on. Okay. It's yeah. the whole key to the song. And I'm a, more of a lyricist than I am a... Uh, I don't think in terms of three minute blocks of music. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, in retrospect, if I had, you know, maybe it would have been a bigger record than it was, but I don't, didn't care. And I still don't care. I, I, I had a story to tell. And this 40 seconds that they wanted to cut out was like the meat of the story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it wasn't like anybody just like approached me and said, let's talk about it. They said, they sent me this demo cut. I said, no. Okay, good. So they traded me to to Irving Azoff, the, the the Eagles manager who had who was running MCA Records. They traded me like a baseball player, or like a you know an old Harley. And I, all of a sudden, I'm an MCA recording artist, Tony Carey slash Planet P project, and so some tough city, and then. A Planet P record, second Planet P record, a double concept pink bubblegum album called Pink World. And the following album called Blue Highway all came out on MCA. Very confusing. <laughs> Very confusing indeed. <laughs> For yeah. everybody. Um, some, some Tough Cities is a fantastic record. I love love the tracks on there. Tinseltown and 
Eddie Goes Underground. I love those yeah. sorts of things. Brilliant records. Yeah. These are complete autobiographical. One, one word to that. Yeah. These are complete autobiographical. I mean, I lived in the seamiest side of LA, which is West Hollywood, for several years. And these are all like true stories, <laughs> all these all these criminals and 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 shady characters. And uh Eddie Goes Underground is uh you heard about your trouble up in Stanislaus County. That's where I'm from, Stanislaus uh-huh. County, California. That's these are all autobiographical and they're all they're all like basically true. The names weren't even changed to protect <laughs> the innocent. I was too young to know about that. So but thanks, thanks that you I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a few times there about the MTV play and the radio play and things like that. Some people um not really bothered by things like that. But how did you feel at that time seeing your records, your things you've you've put out there that you've created uh, that have been played on MTV all the time and across Europe and on radio and everything? How did that feel? I didn't love it. Didn't love it, hated it. Got out of there as soon as I could, never went back. I didn't like it at all. I mean, my idea of rock, I'm a 70s guy or even a 60s guy. And my idea of rock is the rock is a band, has a, a mystique and an image, and you don't have to see everything. And it doesn't have to be sexy girls in a video because there isn't a video. And if they come to play in your town, you go see them, and if word of mouth spreads it, and the occasional uh, a mystique, like, like Zeppelin had. Zeppelin weren't an MTV band, or you know, Creedence Clearwater, or The Doors, or or the Big Brother and the Holding Company, or the Grateful Dead. These are the bands I like, and they, they were all uh, Fleetwood Mac. The the, the really good sixties and seventies bands. For me, they're all. It's all about the mystique, you know. And all of a sudden, you put cameras on on people that aren't actors, and you know, it's pretty much ridiculous. And then it it, it led to the inevitable, which is glam. You know, put put the put the the David Lee Ross, the guys that are actors and can wear spandex, and uh, all these you know, Motley Crue and all the yeah. all the 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 the, the next gen- we were we were a kind of an LA strip band, Rainbow. By the way, we were based in in West Hollywood. And we and we got we took our name from the Rainbow Bar and Grill in in Hollywood. So I consider us an LA band, even though those two Brits and a New Yorker and me and. <laughs> But the the other the next generation was uh, in the early '80s. They were like five, six, seven years later than us. And this is glam rock, which took over everything from you know Warrant or Poison or yeah, Rats whatever they yeah. Van Halen, Rat, yeah, all of that stuff. And they were like made for MTV. And then De- and Coverdale when he came back yeah. with 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 his Watch his new look yeah. and his sexy girlfriend <laughs> uh, and all that. Uh, great, that did him well, but. I hated it. Uh, I thought this is, if I wanted to be on TV, I'd be on a soap opera. I mean, I hated it uh, and still do. And, uh, but you know, that's the way, that's the way the music business changed. I'll tell you the seventies, the eighties and the nineties though, were the best time to be in the, in the music industry that it'll never be the same. And before that, it wasn't the same. And before 19, about 1970, you couldn't make any money because you get ripped off by everybody. And Peter Grant changed that with Led Zeppelin in like 1969, 70, And all of a sudden, Led Zeppelin was getting 90% of the income of the gate of the shows before, you know, they, they would buy a, a blues singer's catalog for a bottle of Jim Beam, you know. And uh, he's fucked and, and somebody else got rich. Or the Colonel with Elvis yeah. had 50% anyway and embezzled 40% of the rest. And left Elvis with a drug habit and a private jet that, that, you know, had to pay the gas for and and play in Vegas and split in his pants because of his pill habit. So that, that was 50s, 60s. And then 70s and into in, in the 80s and pretty much through the 90s. By the end of the 90s, things were slowing down. By the end of the 90s, music had become devalued to the point where file sharing came. Mm-hmm. And we had the whole Metallica yeah, Sue's Napster. Uh, yeah. uh, Napster. Lars was right. Something is only worth as much as somebody else will pay for it. And you know, there's a perceived value like to music. And in the 70s and the 80s, it was quite high. And uh you could make a lot of money and and uh do real well for yourself, be it on a radio. The radio pays crazy good. MTV plays pays enormously at that time. But all of a sudden, music is free. You could download it. And then, you know, just way before Spotify, but the same principle. 
if something's free, it's not worth anything. If you know, if I give you, if you're out in the desert and I give you a bag of diamonds or or or, or, or a cola light, which you're going to take? The bag of diamonds isn't worth anything. And if music is free and you can get it on demand and not pay anything for it, and it'll go <laughs> watch your bands on MTV for free, it kind of takes the it demonetizes it and waters it down to the point that it's really tough to make a living making music. Absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 would, I don't know what I'd tell you. Um, if I don't have sons, I just have daughters. But if I had a son that wanted to be a rock and roller, I don't know. I'd tell him, get that law degree, which, <laughs> my, which, which, which my father never told me, you know, because there were, it, was the, it was the golden years. And, you know, go for it, follow your dream and this and that. But there's not much of a dream to follow now since, since the, the commodity has devaluated to the point where it's basically worthless. It's free. That's as political as, as I'll get. <laughs> now we can talk me. about the sex and drugs yeah. part. <laughs> That's fine by me. Um, in terms of, you mentioned earlier, if you weren't a musician, you, you probably would have been an author and that kind of, you mentioned Planet P project there a few times and the, the sci-fi things around it. Were you a, um, a sci-fi fan yourself then? I was an everything fan, but 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 uh, yeah, I've just read everything fiction, not not music, fiction, like uh, everything from from Steinbeck, Hemingway to Heinlein. Uh, I mean, Planet P was in in Heinlein's novel Starship Trooper on page three hundred and something. There's just a mention of they 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 they, they blew by Planet P, oh. and then so you never hear of it again. It was just this this Throw random thing. So. Yeah. So that's my name of my band, of course. <laughs> and uh, not many people know that. I, I haven't said that a lot, but it's come from start, the novel Starship Troop. Uh, I, I would have been a, a writer. Uh, I might even have been a journalist. I mean, just writing. Mm-hmm. But it, as, as it turns out, my the thing that, that presented itself as possible and that I was, it was a lot of fun and that I was turned out to be okay, not bad at, is short form, which is lyrics. Uh, lyrics. Fantastic. And in terms of some of the production work, then you mentioned it earlier, um, Chris Norman from Smokey, and I think you said Joe Cocker as well, and, yeah, and things yeah. like that. Um, I suppose for a man who spent so much time in the studio like you, it was a, a natural progression. So how did that come about? When did someone first approach you and say, can you produce me or, or this act? Well, the biggest the biggest guy that, that, that it wanted, the first real production offer I got was in 1985. And the biggest rock star in Europe is a guy called Peter Maffei. And you won't know his name, but he's a German, sings in German. He sold 50 million German language records. And he's had, this is Guinness Book stuff. He's had 21 number one albums, wow. which in a major market is like more than the Beatles, though. Anybody, Michael Jack, anybody. And he's still my best buddy. And he wanted some rock cred. He was kind of a, a more of an easy listening singer and he's down in the Munich area and I was up in Frankfurt and he showed up in the studio one day and I knew who he was. He's a huge star and a real cool guy, just like jeans and cowboy boots and bottle of whiskey. And we got to know each other and, and he says, you want to come down to and, and work on my resident and you know help me produce the rest. Fuck yeah, I'm there. <laughs> and so I did three records for him and they're all number one. But in truth, if 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 uh if if the guy that cut you the lawn producer, they would have been number one. I mean, this is Peter, this is Peter Maffei in his, in his, the most successful phase of his career. We would go on tour. I'd be his special guest. We'd be like some of the acts are now. We'd be in a city in the, in the local arena eight nights in a row, you know, in, uh-huh. in the 20,000 seater. And we'd sell a hundred to 150,000 tickets in Munich and then into in Berlin and in Hamburg. He would not, not we, I say he. <laughs> and so I was along for the ride. And he wanted some rock credibility, first of all, and he wanted somebody that wouldn't lie to him. You know, I didn't, I wasn't going to like tell him something just because he yeah. wanted to hear it. You know, and, and you know, I told him what I thought and what I thought lined up with what he figured enough that it works. It was a successful partnership that led to people just just that credit, that credit, that production credit of producing Peter Maffa. Just the phone wouldn't stop ringing, and then I went had a. I had a, a number one hit here, and it's it's still one of the top 25, I think it's number 20-something, 21 or something, all-time biggest records in Germany. I wow. mean, ever. said ever. That was never released anywhere else except Germany. It's called Room with a View, and it was the soundtrack 
to a miniseries that was on TV in 1989 at Christmas and had the biggest audience share, hits, record-breaking, this and that. And that's like a mega, mega, mega hit that everybody here that owns a radio knows. And that got a lot of, you know, that was a really good credit to have because I played every instrument on that record and did it, made it myself. With a, with a, well, I had one guy, I had a, a, wow. a guy engineering because I can't do everything. But uh, basically, me and this other guy did everything. And, uh, you know, word got around. And, and so what would happen with a guy like, say, Joe, Joe was touring through Europe. He's a Brit, a, a Brit yeah. and a good guy. And uh, this was after his disaster years. He was like, he was down to just a couple of beers. He's a great guy. And the record, the record company, his German record company, and these guys all were huge in Germany. Germany was like the second market. It would be America, Germany, Japan, and then maybe the UK. You know, that was that's generally the order anyway of the world record hierarchy was America, Japan, Germany, UK. So Joe Cocker would be on tour and he'd be in Germany for six weeks or, or you know, do a lot of dates. And somebody, and they, they said, well, we need a record. Since he's here, let's grab him and do a record. And and him and Chris Norman was exactly the same. He says, yeah, but I need somebody that speaks English. <laughs> and hey, we got just the guy for you. So they'd send me somewhere. And, you know, I have a couple of beers with Joe or Chris Norman and say, yeah. And Chris is uh, and, and Joe said, yeah, love it. Come on down. As long as you speak English, because he didn't want to fight with a German producer. <laughs> and so, you know, brought him down and, and recorded it. And it was also a movie soundtrack, which was the number one single, and uh, made it out of his greatest hits album. I don't know who paid who, who off to get that done, but I'm happy for it, grateful <laughs> for it, because I wrote it. And Chris Norman's was, wife was pregnant with, I think, their fifth child. And his, he was just full of all kinds of domestic stuff he had to take care of. And he was on the road because, uh, but he, he owed them an album and he didn't have time to make it, you know, because he's a, he's a family man. And, you know, he has five kids and a sixth on the way or four and the fifth on the way, something like that. <laughs> he said, here's what I need. I said, I need actually a bunch of songs that sound like Chris Norman songs, like Smokey songs. Sad, no problem. So I wrote him five songs, half of the, the A side of the album. Played all the instruments myself with, with an engineer, sent the tapes over to him. He loved them. He sang on them, sent them back. I mixed them. So his contribution was just going into his own home studio, because I did this <laughs> in my home studio, and going down for a couple of days. He put a couple of his guitars on. It sounded like Chris Norman playing guitar and sang. He's a great singer. And, but my songs, my lyrics, he didn't have to like break his head too much about it. And he, and he could deliver the album that he needed to keep on his schedule while his wife was nine months, eight, nine months pregnant and <laughs> bugging him about everything, you know. He didn't need the he didn't need the heat. So that's how that that's how that worked out. Fantastic. Incredible yeah. stories. Yeah, great, huh? That's yeah. really funny. And he was a great guy. We had we had, we I only met him the, twice and talked to him on the phone a couple of times, but he was a fantastic guy. And I, I understood completely where he was at because I had kids of my own and I know what <laughs> pregnant wives are like when you, when there's a record do. And I could like empathy pure for yeah. what his. Say no more, Chris. Situation. I know what you need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just say no more. Say no more. And I, I sent him, I sent him five. I thought he'd take three. He took all five and sang him back and he came back great and i mean the label liked him he liked him i liked him they sold well so you know Brilliant mission ac mission accomplished absolutely mission accomplished and just quickly yeah. um touching on health issues i mean you had uh, bladder cancer didn't you a number of years ago but had uh, that you had, but not had, for very not for very long thankfully all gone now all clear now man I mean, they cut it. i got lucky uh uh i won't go into any graphic detail but the way you know you got bladder cancer if there's something when you go to the bathroom, you see something you shouldn't. Yeah. And I saw a drop of blood, which could have meant anything from a from a from a, a bladder infection, like nothing at all. But me being <clears throat> not oblivious for once, went to the doctor, and it was a long process to get it diagnosed. But by long, I say a couple of months, not mm -hmm. not real long. And we finally figured out uh, I had two tumors in my bladder inside the bladder. So what they did was they took my bladder out and I didn't have any chemotherapy, didn't have any radiation. It didn't spread. It was just the easiest 
the easiest horrible thing you, you <laughs> which is like a contradiction, but it's the easiest awful thing you could possibly have. And this is 14 years ago. And, you know, I, I was really, really fortunate because most people, first of all, wouldn't necessarily be studying their output with an intensity enough to see one drop of blood go by. Yeah. First of all, not paying that much attention. And second, would think, oh, it's a, I'll take antibiotics, it's a bladder infection, you know, or something. But I said, no, no, I want to find out what it is. And they did. So it was it was more dramatic than I'm making it out to be. But the point is that that it was a lot less dramatic than it could have been. And I'm yeah. a, I'm cancer-free. From the minute they took the bladder out, I was cancer-free. It hadn't spread anywhere. So Fantastic yeah. news. And yeah. a great reason to get checked if there's any, even the slightest thing you know, different or wrong I, with you. Well, I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, if you see anything in your urine that shouldn't be there, like blood, or it looks brown even, go to the doctor. Yeah. Because... Uh, that shouldn't be there, and there's a reason it's there, and find out what it is. Absolutely. And um, just in terms of what you're up to now, I mean, what, what are you doing these days, Antonio? Tony? Are you out on the road? Are you still recording? Are you producing? Well, what's happening with you? I'm producing the record. I pretty much gave it up the road. The I was on the road until the pandemic came. I, I toured Norway, Scandinavia, Germany, uh, Norway, Sweden, when I say Scandinavia, Denmark, Germany. Uh, I play Italy, Spain, and... Uh, maybe 30, 40 dates a year. And, you know, I'll be 70 in a couple of months. And, but the pandemic killed the music business. It's, it's, you, you'll, you'll hear it from everybody and you'll read it everywhere. And it's true. I mean, if, if you need a tour bus, first of all, you either can't find one or the 20,000 a week or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or more. And if you need a crew, you either can't find one or they cost four times what they cost in 2019. Because most of the people that work in the in the in the peripheral music industry, like the truck drivers, the riggers, the the, the the guys that do the lights, the guys that do the sound, the guys that are guitar techs and keyboard tech, well, they have families too, you know. In in Germany, as it happens, a lot of them went to work for the railroad, and a lot of them were truck drivers because long haul trucking pays really really well. It pays better than rock and roll. It's not maybe not as exciting, <laughs> but it keeps the family fed, and a lot of people like change jobs, and that completely destroyed the the industry. So, I do have. I'll give a little plug. We have a group called the Soulmates. This is a super group in in its in a real real sense of the word. And in this group, it's called Man Mandoki's Soulmates, and Leslie Mandoki is like. Germany's Quincy Jones. He's a producer. He's produced everywhere. Phil Collins, Lionel Richie, <clears throat> Jennifer Rush, lots and lots and lots of people. And <clears throat> he's one of my oldest friends, and 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 uh, uh, he's a great guy. I love him. This and that. He's got a group. He's had it for thirty years. We have. They keep dying on us, but but uh, uh, people keep dying on us. But we got Jack Bruce, Chaka Khan. Uh, David Clayton Thomas, Steve Lukather. Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, uh, Simon Phillips is playing drums on a new album, which we're in the middle of making now. I'm a singer. I play Hammond organ, and I'm one of lead singers. And the other one is uh, Nick Ede from Cutting Crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick uh, did. Uh, real great guy, great singer. Yeah, yeah. And Chuck is going to sing. <laughs> and uh, John Anderson's going to sing. Oh, Ian wow. Anderson from Jethro Tull plays the flute. <laughs> Richard Bona, who's the world's greatest, uh, he's he's Jaco Pastorius reincarnated from Africa, plays bass. And we have a jazz element. We have Randy Brecker on trumpet, Mike Stern on guitar, okay. Bill Evans on sax. These are all like Hall of Fame jazz yeah. cats. Our average age is about 112. <laughs> and it's amazing that we're all still around. But we get together. Make an album, and we'll do this year. We're doing uh, seventy nine nine dates as soulmates. We're going to play, and we play for we play for for governments more than more than like like we played in Peking when it was still called Peking yeah. before it was Beijing. Beijing we played yeah. we played in South America. We played in Chile. We played in New York. <laughs> we played in Berlin, and we play every year. We play in in Budapest. For 50,000 people on their national holiday, which is like the American 4th of July or your Boxer Day, you know, whatever. And uh, so Mandoki Soulmates, and we'll be playing in Hungary, 
Leslie's Hungarian. He's like a Hungarian folk hero. Mm-hmm. So we'll play in two, two uh, Budapest and in another city in Hungary, which would be both like for 50,000 people. But it's not like we play for they're, they're like fast folk fest, street festivals, you yeah. know, and we, we don't sell tickets to those. The government pays for it because it costs us. <laughs> freaking fortune because you're flying people in from the united states from from yeah. from china one of our one of our guest soloists is a lady that plays a, a, a classical piano for the chinese national orchestra and she gets we get her a visa and she comes over and she doesn't speak anything she's got a translator with her and she comes and does her bit and uh John Haleywell from Supertramp yeah, is, John, on, yeah. is with us this time. And, oh, man, you wouldn't believe Sexy Jack Bruce. We had Jack Bruce uh, wow. before he died. Greg Lake before he died. <laughs> and just this, this revolving cast of of, of characters uh, who enjoy enjoy doing it. it, it it's, it's the kind of thing where you got to leave your ego at the door, you know. I mean, if Greg Lake's with us, we're going to do Lucky Man, you know, for sure. And if Jack Bruce is with us, we're going to do Sunshine of Your Love. And what? Because I'm with us, we're going to do "Room with a View," which is my European hit. But I mean, last year's program, we took we took Bartok, uh, uh, the uh, Hungarian Pictures was the name of us. This classical piece from turn of the 20th century, at quite revolutionary, out there, lends itself great to jazz rock, and we made this 72 minute double album called Hungarian Pictures, uh, which was. We produced it in four continents for tons and tons of money. But you know, we got spon- Audi sponsors it, and Mercedes sponsors it, and and because you know, nobody can afford to pay for that these days. So that's what we. That's what I'm doing pretty much this year. Wow, uh, <laughs> Mandoki's soulmates. I feel and, ashamed to say I've never heard. I've never heard no, that name. We, we've it's never been to, we, no, we have been to England. We played the Hammersmith Odeon, which okay. is not the it's not the Hammersmith Odeon anymore. It's the something the else. Or something, yeah. <laughs> the, oh yeah, but it's the Odeon. It's yeah. the same one I played with Rainbow. Yeah. Uh, in, in 1976, we played there in 2019, oh. uh, uh, just as our as our, uh, I guess. Uh, but you know, they, we had. I don't know if you know Corey Henry, but he's the world's hottest jazz keyboard player these days. All these, all these names, and they put us up in Kensington Gardens, Hilton, and all this, <laughs> wow. everything five star first class. It was all sponsored, you know, because yeah. you'd never make you ne- what, what what we cost. You'd never make it. You'd have to charge a thousand bucks a ticket, and nobody cares that much anyway. It's just <laughs> kind of jazz rock, but that's a lot of fun. And uh, like I said, if they keep dying, I'll be the real lead singer. But now, now, <laughs> but now I, I sing. Nick Nick Eid sings, and Leslie sings. Wow, that is incredible! Absolutely the new album is turning out wonderfully, as they all do, and it'll be out in January on Sony Records, and it'll be one of the last, the very last physical releases that Sony Records do. By the way, they're uh-huh. phasing out of physical in 2025, and uh, this is an expensive, lovely package, double vinyl, <laughs> and you know, triple CD or whatever, triple vinyl, double CD, whatever, big big deal package it'd be one of the last ones that they do and and um happy in the right time in the right place happy to be a part of that and and these are these are friends are friends of mine and fantastic musicians the first time simon phillips has played with us he's fabulous yeah he's just amazing you know like like you'd expect he would be he's just like you'd expect he's that good like you like you'd think he'd be you know (laughs) so so cool incredible well i've enjoyed this hour sitting with you tony and hearing all your stories and you've left off with an absolute cracker i'm going to be going away and listening to that and making yeah. sure that I, I i get hold of that uh, release in january as well Sounds you fantastic. know what send me your send me i have your email address yes you do i'll send yeah. you a, I'll send you a U, your youtube link but kids that's mandoki's soulmates m-a-n-d-o-k-i soulmates it's on youtube we're pretty good go have a look <laughs> and thank you paul you've got enough names in there thank you so much for your time tony it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with okay, you okay man see ya there you go the brilliant tony carey there such a fascinating career he's had obviously the iconic rising album will be what many people focus on but his own solo records planet p project his production credits and the mandoki soulmates which is something i've definitely checked out such an incredible thing you should check it out as well 
So that's it for me and this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all the episodes. Please leave a Vintage Rock Pod a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It really makes a big difference. And look for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. And you can get to watch these fantastic interviews with the rock stars in person too. And I'll hopefully be back next week with another brilliant interview for you on Vintage Rock Pod. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.